Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Well, last Sunday night, I got an email um, having just preached that morning on the cosmic spiritual conflict that lies behind the conflicts and battles that rage in our lives. And the email came from some missionary friends of uh, Ali and me, and they are serving in Southeast Asia. We met them and became friends while we were at seminary, and their email said this, Friends and family, we write to you so soon after our last email to ask you to beseech the Father with us throughout this week and to fast as you are able. We and our colleagues will be sharing more openly about the truth and power of the good news with our workers. If you're in our WhatsApp group, you are aware of the frequent instances recently of staff members being possessed by evil spirits. For those of us in the West, it can be hard to wrap our minds around stories like these. In cultures like the ones here, the spiritual world is just as much a part of reality as the physical world. People here are gripped by fear of the spirits, and specifically our employees are afraid to go to work or to work in certain rooms. The spirit that has been oppressing one of our workers claims to live in one of the chocolate production rooms along with other spirits. When an episode is occurring, people around the affected person hang on their every word as the spirit tells them what to do to appease the other more evil spirits. The situation has intensified in the last 24 hours with the spirits now blaming a particular person for some illness and death in the village and demanding that this person be killed. We've had some updates from them throughout the week, which has um, showed signs of God answering the prayers, and I've been praying each day along this week for them, but I found myself when I read this email thinking, wow, what a reminder of what we were talking about last Sunday, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers, as Paul says, in the heavenly places. What a reminder to pray, as Daniel prayed in chapter 10, engaging in spiritual conflict with the weapon of prayer and was answered by God. And today, in our final week in this Old Testament book of Daniel, we look at the rest of what we started last week in chapter 10. If you weren't here last Sunday or today is your first time visiting, you should know that these verses are part of a larger vision that began in chapter 10, his final vision in Babylon. The book of Daniel, set mostly in the 5th century BCE, divides into two halves, chapters 1 through 6, which tells stories of Daniel and his friends' lives as they're taken into captivity by the mighty Babylonian Empire. They show us how to live faithfully to God in a culture that's often hostile. And then Daniel chapter 7 to 12 is a series of four visions that Daniel receives about events that are yet to take place, events that concern the future of God's people. There's quite a bit of overlap of these visions. In fact, Daniel chapter 11 repeats 
uh, in greater detail a lot of the content from Daniel chapter 8, which is why we've not read all of it and why I'm going to concentrate mostly on chapter 12 today. But if I had to sum up for you what Daniel 11 and 12 had to say in a simple way, I'd say it's there to answer this question. What happens when the God of Daniel 6 doesn't rescue you from the mouths of the lions? What happens when the God of Daniel 3 doesn't prevent you from the fiery furnace? What happens when suffering gets not just to your doorstep, but rampages through the home of your life? Is there a reason for hope in the midst of that kind of great trouble? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. A little bit like last week, we'll start by working our way just through the passage, trying to get a bit of an understanding of what's going on, and then I've got some takeaways as we try and apply it to our lives. And so firstly, let's just make sense of Daniel's vision of the end. If you want to meet me there, we're in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. Now, already it should be pretty clear that the context here is an extremely difficult time for God's people. There shall be a time of anguish, it says. It will be so bad that it eclipses anything that has happened up to this point. The great prince is Michael, an angel whose name we said last week means, who is like God? And he's arisen to fight for God's people. And the question is, what's going on here and when is all of this occurring? We find out that it's happening at that time, which is the time of the end of chapter 11. And what you need to know about chapter 11 is that it's the story of about 400 years of history from the time of Daniel looking forwards, of Israel being caught in the middle of the global superpowers of its day. This tiny and politically insignificant nation at the whim of all of those around it. The kings of the north, the Seleucid dynasty of Syria, Greek kings, and the kings of the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, are going at each other, and they're understood as the kings of the north and of the south from the perspective of Jerusalem, because guess what? Perched between these two great kingdoms is little Judah. Judah, the place to which the Jews in exile had returned to rebuild their temple and their city, Jerusalem. They were hoping for a return of God's presence and the preeminence of the people of God, like in the days of the great King David. But according to the vision that Daniel gets of what the future will be like, Judah is like a little dinghy getting tossed around in the wake of these two giant battleships dueling it out for the supremacy of the region. And in chapter 11, at the end, verses 36 to 45, 
we read about a king who shall act as he pleases. Verse 36, nothing will stop him. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than any God and shall speak horrendous things against the God of gods. Verse 41, it's not just that there's a conflict in the region somewhere away from God's people. No, this king shall come into the beautiful land, that's Judah, and tens of thousands shall fall victim. You see the picture emerging? What the vision has to say to Daniel and those who read it is, things are going to get mighty difficult for God's people. Suffering will be real. At times, it will be intense. It's worth remembering that this section of Daniel is what we call apocalyptic literature. Daniel 7 through 12 is the longest section of apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. The second longest in the whole Bible, only longer section is the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. And a simple way to understand what apocalyptic literature is trying to do is to think of someone pulling back the curtain on spiritual reality or popping the bonnet on a car so you can see spiritual reality underneath. So we can see what's really going on as far as God is concerned. Apocalyptic literature is meant to show us God's perspective on human history and events. It means that sometimes the details of it are hard to interpret. So, for example, we don't know whether this king spoken about here in verses 36 through 45 is... Antiochus for Epiphanes, which a king we spoke about a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter 8, a king who was really bad news for God's people in the middle of the second century, the one who set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, banned Jewish sacrifices, stopped them worshipping and keeping the Sabbath, and sacrificed a pig in the temple, an animal that was ritually unclean for the Jews to the horror and disgrace of all. He was a king who did what he pleased. And so in some ways, these, past, these verses match up pretty well with his life, although it gets kind of messy at the end of them. And so it's possible that this is referring not just to Antiochus, but to some tyrant after him, perhaps even someone still to come. In my view, the, the best way to read passages like this is to imagine a collapsible telescope. When you look at a telescope, you know, a handheld one like this, at first it looks like it's just one segment, but then when you pull it out, it becomes a series of usually, you know, three or four interlocking tubes. And the idea is that apocalyptic literature can function a little bit like this on more than one level. So that as time wears on, we realize that actually this doesn't just represent one king, one ruler, it represents a type of rule, a type of tyrant who is opposed to God and his purposes, the kinds of powers that will continually rise up in the world to threaten God's people until God says, enough. And here in Daniel 12, we're shown what enough means. Halfway through verse 1, but at that time, your people that's Daniel's people, shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book 
Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See, God's answer to the experience of his people being ground to the dust is to do something remarkable. He reverses it. They will be delivered, but not before they experience death. Now, in the hands of God, death is only a sleep. Many who ex- of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, Daniel's told, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Those who inflict suffering on God's people, well, they'll not be forgotten. They'll rise to face judgment. But their work will be undone. They brought death, but God brings new resurrection life, and not just new life as if it were the same as life before. No, in the Old Testament, those in authority, often kings, are sometimes referred to as being like stars, such that what stars are to the heavens giving light, so kings were to the earth. And what Daniel is being told is that those who suffer, God's faithful people, those who are martyred even, will be set in authority over the world. They'll judge and they'll rule. They'll shine like stars. And that's the end of the vision. Daniel's told to seal it up. Verse 4, because it is for the time of the end and not for then. The sealing is a mark of authentication. It's saying this really will take place. When someone sealed a document, they were putting their stamp of authority upon it. But it also, it's also sealed here because it's not for Daniel's time. And everything else in chapter 12 from verses 5 through 13 is just Daniel trying to understand what all of this means. And just as Kerry said before, if, you can, if you're confused, you can take some comfort from the fact that Daniel, who got the vision face to face, he says in verse 8, I heard but couldn't understand. So I said, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And gets an even more cryptic response. That's the vision. That's Daniel 12. God is going to answer the question of suffering through resurrection. The clearest picture, actually, of resurrection in the entire Old Testament comes here in Daniel chapter 12. And so if that's the vision, then the question is, what does it mean for us today? I've got two reflections. Number one is this. Hold on to Jesus because deliverance is coming. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. The New Testament picks up this idea of the book, it's there in a couple of other passages in the Old Testament too, but it picks it up and particularly we get it again in the book of Revelation, the book of life, everyone whose names are found written in that book. 
Will you face times of trial? Yes. Are there storms on the horizon which will push you back and test every fiber within you? Absolutely. But God will not rest. God will not let the darkness ultimately triumph. He will ensure that light breaks through the darkness, that difficulty will end, that life, resurrection life, will be the final song. He will judge the earth. He will judge those who have hardened their hearts against him and against his people. Some rise not to everlasting life, but to everlasting shame and contempt. (coughs) And that's good news. Because it means that the bullies and the tyrants of the world will not get away with their wicked schemes, but for those who've trusted in him, he will raise them to life everlasting. In our culture... We who follow Jesus, we can sometimes find ourselves in the crossfire, can't we? Of a world that derides faith, of a world that mocks faithfulness to Jesus, rather than seeking to maximize your pleasure or your experiences now. Of a world that finds the vision for life that Christianity presents not just difficult, but deficient and even disgusting. And some of our brothers and sisters around the world find themselves not just in the crossfire, but in the crosshairs, deliberately targeted, persecuted and killed because of their faith. The promise of resurrection means that none of this will be the final word. God may not shut the mouths of the lions in this life, but he will rescue you from the ultimate lion, death when he raises you to eternal life and to the new creation. And so, hold on. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, has Ivan, one of the characters, say words that he too believed. He said, I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they have shed that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. We hold on to God because we know that God is holding on to us. God holds the world in his hands. He holds our present. He holds our future. Who knows what tomorrow will bring for you? The world is challenging and confronting. It calls so many of our assumptions into question. Maybe the dream that you always hoped for hasn't become a reality. Maybe your health hasn't proven to be anywhere near as secure as you anticipated. Maybe you've lost friendships, been betrayed by somebody, 
and you found yourself wondering along the way, is God going to really deliver? And Daniel chapter 12 says that God has not forgotten his promises. And we know that even more than Daniel did because he's shown it principally by raising Jesus from the dead. The first of this resurrected humanity that Daniel 12 envisions. That's why Paul writes in that other reading we had from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you also are being saved. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This promise of resurrection that the Old Testament holds out is answered first in Jesus, the guarantee that God will not rest until he finishes his purpose. That Jesus is the first fruits of all, Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, who will be raised from the dead. And we now live in what's called the last days in the Bible the time between the coming of Jesus and his return in glory. We don't know how long that time will be. Daniel's given a bunch of numbers here in the end of his book. 1,290 days, 1,335 days, and it's actually very difficult to work out exactly what those numbers are supposed to stand for. But one thing you can know for certain is that these numbers have a definitive end point. There's a time in God's calendar, and at the right time, he will bring history to its appointed end when Jesus returns to make all things right. And when that day comes, and when you're 10,000 years into glory, all the suffering and difficulties that we've had to endure in this life, that you may have had to endure in this life, will feel like Nothing more than one night in a bad motel. And so hold on. Don't give in to evil. Evil loves to lie. Evil loves to deceive. But don't give up on God. And secondly, and just briefly, don't build your kingdom here because it will not last. Chapter 11 is littered with kings and empires who get their way, who build their kingdoms here on earth, who, to use the words of this king in chapter 11, verse 36, act as they please. In verse 45, he pitches his palatial tents, palatial tents, between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. But look at how verse 46 concludes. He shall come to his end with no one to help him. And if you read chapter 11 over and over, you see this refrain repeated, he shall not endure, he shall be defeated, he shall come to his end as one empire and kingdom successively after another. And that ought to serve as a reminder for us to not seek to build our kingdoms apart from seeking to build his kingdom 
to live our lives under His Lordship, not to seek to create our heavens through our homes or our families or our careers or our experiences in this life, because if you invest everything in building a kingdom here, you'll miss out on the kingdom of God. As Jesus said to His disciples, what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Those who want to save their lives will lose them. But those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. See, Daniel 12 shows us that sometimes some of our dreams need to die. God needs to resurrect them and resurrect us. Even for Daniel, there'd been this glorious vision back in Daniel chapter 2 of his people's future presented as a growing kingdom. Or in chapter 7 of the saints inheriting the kingdom from the Most High. But Daniel 12 shows him and us that this future will not come here on earth this side of glory. Plenty of dreams will die on this side of the grave, but on the other side of the resurrection will be never-ending newness. In the words of C.S. Lewis, the present life is only the cover and the title page. We still await chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so as we conclude, let me ask the question, what are you hoping for? When was the last time you thought about heaven? Or is every thought and every waking moment consumed by dreams of life right now? How much does God's tomorrow shape your today? And what will it look like for you to let the promise of resurrection life lead you in faithfulness and hopefulness as you serve Him and seek to bless other people, no matter what that costs? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this book of Daniel, not easy. And yet a great reminder of your faithfulness, a great reminder that there is an unseen reality that is like the control room, giving shape to the things that happen here that we see in front of our eyes. And so we pray, Lord, help us to fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen to let the perspective of heaven inform our present, to make us more useful in the present, to make us more faithful in the present because we know what you will do and therefore we know that nothing that we give up, that no suffering or hardship we endure, that no love offered to another will be wasted. And so strengthen us 
to serve you all our days. Amen.